begin in Genesis chapter 6. If you don't yet have your Bibles open, Genesis chapter 6. And before we read this text, uh, let's pray together. <clears throat> oh Lord our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises that we can read in it. Those promises that though given a very long time ago still are true for us today. We thank you for your preserving grace. We thank you for uh, giving us a context in which uh, summer and winter and seed time and harvest and light and darkness and cold and heat continue. Uh, thank you for preserving the line of uh, your covenant faithfulness and, uh, and giving the context for the fulfillment of all of your promises through Christ Jesus. Help us as we read this today to have wisdom according to your word. Give us your Holy Spirit that we would understand what it is that you are teaching us. Help us, Lord, to trust in you and to learn more about you uh, and uh, to love you more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, let's begin uh, by reading Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to read the first 13 verses. We're going to go uh, into the very beginning of God announcing the flood. First 13 verses, and then just a few comments on this text. When man began to multiply on the face of the land... And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Uh, now, uh, just in looking at this, the, the thing that we need to pay attention to, following the bouncing ball, in a sense, in this passage, uh, is the progress of sin. Uh, when we think about uh, the, uh, the covenant promises made to Noah, we need to ground them in this larger context uh, of, uh, where, did, uh, where did I put it, what R.C. Sproul calls the radical expansion of evil. That's the story between the last covenant administration we saw when God shows up and makes covenant promises to Adam and Eve in the garden, that first instance of the covenant of grace, uh, the story between there and here is this radical expansion of evil. There is, uh, as Robertson points out, it's the story of these two lines that we saw in Genesis 3. 
the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Already in chapter 4, we see the seed of the serpent taking the initiative. Uh, Cain, who the New Testament tells us was of the evil one, slaying his brother. Uh, and then you hear the line of Cain uh, all the way down uh, to Lamech, uh, who says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. There is this... Uh, this fighting and enmity between the people of the earth. There are these people who are following after the seed of the serpent, uh, going in the ways of flesh, going in the ways of sin. And then in chapter 5, we also see this other line, the line of Seth, uh, that comes down through to Noah. Uh, Noah, who is connected specifically to the curse in the garden. Notice uh, his naming. Chapter 5 Verse 28 and 29, when Lamech had lived 187, uh, I'm sorry, 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. You hear that echo there of the curse in the garden. Uh, the, the land itself is cursed. There is pain. There is toil. And yet here is the hope, even in the naming of Noah, his name means relief. Uh, here's one who will give relief from the pain and from the toil that has come upon the earth because of the curse of sin. And so Noah is, uh, is the point at which this culmination uh, of these two lines converge. Uh, we see that I'm not going to attempt to explain the Nephilim in the beginning of chapter 6. Uh, if anybody's really interested, we can talk about the various theories after the class. But the, the basic picture, no matter how you take it, uh, is that there are terrible, wicked things happening in the earth. It says that the intention of man's heart is only evil all the time. Pay attention to that phrase, because that phrase will come back later in chapter 8. It will be mirrored in what God says after he uh, brings the flood, and after he decides not to flood the earth anymore. It's only evil continually. Something else to notice here uh, is the grief that we find in the heart of God in verse 6. It says, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Uh, now, of course, this is an anthropomorphism, right? God doesn't have a heart like we have a heart. Uh, God is, as, uh, as we sometimes say, God is simple. Uh, that, that doesn't mean uh, simplistic, but it means that God is one. He is not divided between his mind and his heart, between his feelings and his thoughts. Uh, but this is a way of teaching us and telling us uh, that this is a, uh, a weight, in a sense. This is the divine offense of sin. If we could call it that, another anthropomorphism, this is the pain that human sin causes to God as he witnesses it. Uh, this is important because it sets up this, uh, this New Testament idea uh, that we find, even uh, Robertson points out in one of the footnotes, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 10, uh, where there's another judgment uh, spoken of, the final judgment, uh, where it says that the Lord is holding off because he doesn't uh, desire that any should come. Uh, to perish, but he desires that all should come to repentance. And so it is this desire of the Lord, we, we see it here, the Lord speaks of his 
uh, his being repented speaks of, uh, of the grief in his heart. Uh, and so we need to understand this sin not only as something that affects what man is doing to man, but something that affects what man does to God, the way that he offends him. Uh, and so we've spoken a little bit about uh, how Noah stands out, uh, but we should know that, uh, that Noah, this one who is uh, to be the relief from the curse, uh, is not the ultimate answer for sin. Uh, we have not gotten there, uh, and Robertson doesn't get there in this, uh, this chapter, but uh, that incident with the wine should tell us uh, that the problem of sin in man's heart is not eradicated by sending a flood upon the earth. It still persists, even though Noah is found a righteous man and blameless in his generation. That, by the way, of course, doesn't mean that he's absolutely righteous and without sin. Uh, that's a comparative statement. Among his generation, he's a standout. He is he's one who uh, is very good by comparison. And sometimes scripture, especially the Old Testament, uh, will speak of righteousness in a comparative sense of, of one person among many others who are unrighteous. Uh, but it, it should be clear that, uh, that God's plan for redemption hasn't found its champion. Uh, that Noah is not the one to bring an end to the problem of sin. Uh, and uh, we'll see that as the Lord comes uh, to announce uh, his covenant promises. So let's look at that in chapter 8, verse 20. Turn there with me. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and we'll see some of uh, the connections with, with what we've already seen in the beginning in chapter 6. So chapter 8, verses 20, uh, and we're going to read uh, quite a bit to chapter 9, verse 19. Uh, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Stop there before we go on. Uh, notice that parallel with the language of God saying or feeling or doing or, or resolving in his heart. Notice that this, in this section at the end of chapter 8, is not yet God announcing his covenant promises to Noah. This is not him entering into covenant, but this is God making a resolution. He is, he is promising sort of to himself within himself, and it's recorded for us. Uh, that's important. It's, a, it's again, this anthropomorphism. Uh, here's what Calvin says about this, the Lord said in his heart. Calvin says the meaning of the passage is that God had decreed that he would not hereafter curse the earth. This form of expression has great weight. For although God never retracts what he has openly spoken with his mouth, yet we are more deeply affected when we hear that he is fixed upon something in his own mind. Because an inward decree of this kind in no way depends upon creatures. And you notice there, uh, not just the speaking about, uh, about what God is saying in his heart, but about what's still happening in the heart of man, right? Uh, in chapter 6, it said the thoughts, the attentions of man's heart is only evil continually. And the problem hasn't gotten much better after the flood. He says, 
that, uh, that man's heart, uh, where was it? <clears throat> I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Uh, from a, the very inception of life, from the, the moment we come into the earth, the intention of our heart is evil, and God is aware that that hasn't changed. And so the, the foundation for the security and the preservation that we find through the covenant that he's going to announce comes not from our hearts or from our piety or from our righteousness. It comes from God's eternal decree. He has decided to be gracious. He has decided to give to us what we do not deserve and to withhold from us what we do deserve, which is complete destruction. And so that's what we're seeing here, that God is, uh, is decreeing in his heart. Let's pick back up in chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. We're going to read to verse 19. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from them, these, <clears throat> from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Excuse me on that last one. Uh, the reason that we read verses 18 and 19 is that it connects uh, to chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, uh, this is not only a covenant with Noah, but a covenant with Noah and his family. And the genealogy goes on to tell us clearly uh, that it is from these three sons that all the families of the earth are dispersed. And so one of the other things that we need to understand about this covenant is, as Robertson points out, it is a universal covenant. 
Miles Van Pelt uh, called this a covenant of common grace. Not a covenant of particular saving grace, but a covenant where God sets the stage, he creates the context in which the particular redeeming grace is going to be played out. In fact, we see that as we go through the covenants, that they are more and more selective as God gives each successive administration of the covenant. So the covenant with Adam, uh, the administration with Adam and with Eve was uh, with Adam, the man, and with Eve, the mother of all living. Right? It is, in a sense, a, a covenant that God proclaims that he will bring a, uh, a savior uh, through this one seed, this one line. Uh, and then when we get to the flood, uh, the line of, uh, of the serpent is done away with, though it continues through the sin in the hearts of man. Uh, and we're narrowed down to the, the line of, of Noah. Well, from Noah, this uh, representation of, the, of uh, the creation covenant, it starts all over again. It starts very broad. And then the next one is the covenant with Abraham, and it narrows the focus a little bit more. Uh, the next one is the covenant with Moses, uh, and that continues the covenant with Abraham with the, the 12 tribes. And the next one is the covenant with David. And so out of this uh, mass of humanity, Abraham and his line is, uh, is selected. Out of this mass of Abraham and his line, this line of David is selected. One of your sons, he says. And then when we get to the new covenant in Christ, the New Testament tells us that it is in Christ that all of God's promises are yes and amen. It narrows from all of humanity to one family, to one family line, to one individual who is this seed of the woman who is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. And that's what we're seeing as all of this is going on. But what we see here in this covenant with Noah is this universal aspect of the covenant. It's made with him, it's made with his sons, everyone after him from whom all the peoples of the earth are dispersed, and with every living creature. So it creates this sphere, this context in which the drama of redemption and the promises that God has made are going to be played out. And that's what we need to see about this, uh, this idea of the universal aspect of redemption. Now, let's, uh, next thing I'd like to do is just to walk quickly uh, through the six points. And this is where your cheat sheet comes in handy. Uh, if you look through the chapter uh, on, uh, in Robertson dealing with the covenant of Noah, uh, he says uh, that there are six distinctives. And so he leaves it pretty general. Uh, he, he doesn't walk um, sort of like we have from start to finish through this. He, he picks up uh, major themes uh, and, and shows us what's going on here. The first theme that he emphasizes is the close interrelation between covenants of creation and the covenant of redemption, what we call the covenant of works and grace. Here again is this idea that, that it is a representation of, of creation. Right? And so in this uh, aspect, we get this, uh, this continued call for man himself to be a ruler and a subduer, uh, to have this cultural mandate to team, to flourish, to fill the earth, uh, to be the ones to, to multiply in it. Uh, and, uh, and he's speaking here about the way that it expands the vista of redemption's horizons. So redemption involves man's total lifestyle as social cultural creature. That's what he says on page 110. Uh, and so when we think of redemption, we need to think of the arena in which redemption happens, this new creation after the flood, uh, and this idea that God is sort of giving creation a second start. The second 
uh, distinctive of the covenant, he says, is the particularity of God's redemptive grace. And so here uh, we come to God choosing Noah out of all of the people who were then on the earth. Uh, he, he speaks specifically about this idea uh, in Genesis, um, uh, is that this one? Yeah, uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, that Noah found grace with God. Uh, the quote there from Robertson on page 112, from among the mass of depraved humanity, God directed his grace toward one man and his family. Now, the, the obvious question that he engages with is, well, it says that Noah was righteous, right? And so wasn't he chosen because he was righteous? Now, the answer, as Tim is shaking his head, is no. Uh, and he points to the breakdown of Genesis. In case you're unaware, uh, there are, there's an internal structure to the book of Genesis. You'll see several times, I believe it's ten times in the book of Genesis, in the English translation it says, now these are the generations of. And that sets up different sections in the book of Genesis. And we see that one of those occurrences, uh, I believe the third occurrence, uh, in the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. Essentially, Moses, as he's writing the book of Genesis, is starting a new section. And so in, in the previous section, the advance of sin culminates in this statement that Noah found grace. He found favor with the Lord. Okay, now let's st start the next chapter. Now it speaks of Noah being righteous. And I think uh, Robertson makes a good point that, uh, that the one comes from the other. Right? The righteousness actually is a product of God giving grace and favor to Noah. And that is part of his preserving grace for Noah and he's chosen him uh, and gives grace to him. The third distinctive of the covenant uh, is that it relates to God's intention to deal with families in his covenant relationships. Now we see that pretty clearly, uh, but he points out in his chapter that uh, when God shows up and speaks to Noah, he speaks to him as a singular individual and then includes his entire family in the ark. This is a picture uh, of the way that God works with families. This is not uh, spiritual salvation guaranteed for all of his children. In fact, we will see uh, soon after the flood that there are curses levied uh, on some of these children for their uh, reactions and, and interactions with sin. Uh, so this doesn't necessarily mean that they themselves are upright and blameless, but they are included in the larger covenant provisions and the covenant blessings that come to Noah through his being their covenant head. So this idea that God works with families. And then the largest section uh, in this chapter deals with what he calls the covenant of preservation. Uh, two ideas here. First, that God has binds himself to preserve the earth in its present world order until the consummation. And so this is the part dealing with uh, the continuation of seed time and harvest and sun uh, uh, sunlight and, and darkness and cold and heat and all the things that we expect for life to continue on earth as we know it and as we need it. Uh, this is God's grace toward him to preserve him. Page 115, man is totally depraved. He's inclined toward self-destruction. He's worthy of judgment, but God in grace and mercy determines to preserve the life of man and promotes the multiplication of his descendants. This is what God must do to fulfill the promise that he made in the garden, to bring that one seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. There has to be this context in which human life continues 
and through which this human redeemer will be born who will put to, uh, to end the, the wiles of Satan. And so there's uh, that aspect that God preserves the earth, this present world order, but then God declares the sanctity of all life. We won't get into all of it now, but he makes uh, the argument uh, that God requires that the life of a manslayer must be taken by the hand of man, uh, the first institution of capital punishment. Uh, and the reason for this is not just that, uh, that murder is a heinous crime, not just that it harms communities and individuals. The idea, the reason for this is that man bears the image of God. And so to take a human life is not only uh, to harm another individual, but it is to assault God and his character and what he has made. This relates very closely to that chapter 6, uh, where sin not only affects what's happening on the earth, but it affects the heart of God as well. That God uh, regrets, in a sense, uh, in a way of speaking there, uh, that he is grieved that he has made uh, man and, and the way that they have progressed in sin. And so God gives this, uh, this declaration uh, he requires capital punishment for the crime of murder. That's the first uh, question that he interacts with in this section. The second, uh, that this is the first sanction of capital punishment. And so that's one that you might have gotten lost uh, at as you were reading through. He's starting to talk about different critical theories about how the Old Testament was constructed. And some people would look at that and say, well, you know, actually all of this language about covenants, that came much later after the Mosaic Law, and it was just... Uh, and reinterpolated back into these uh, documents. And he says, no, 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 there, there's plenty of internal evidence. And, and uh, aside from the fact that we believe that God's word has come down to us as we've received it, this actually is the first institution uh, of capital punishment. Uh, and then he, he takes us back to the covenant with Noah uh, to all creation and says that this requirement is universally binding on all cultures and all times. Uh, and then the fifth aspect uh, of this covenant, he says that it possesses a distinctly universalistic aspect. We've spoken about this uh, quite a bit already, that it extends beyond Noah to every living creature. And then finally, he says that it emphasizes the gracious nature of the covenant through the seal of the rainbow. And here we have this symbol of beauty in the context of judgment. Uh, what we see is beauty, of course, but the, the Hebrew word means a battle bow. Uh, it is God hanging up. It, it, it is him putting away his instruments of destruction. And that's what the, uh, the rainbow and the clouds uh, pictures to us. We see it as this beautiful thing. In fact, uh, he points out that the picture of God in his throne room at the end of days when his people are gathered to him, he is surrounded by a rainbow. And it's a, it's a thing of splendor. It's a thing of beauty in a sense. Uh, but the picture that God gives us is of his battle bow being hung in the clouds, the same place where the rain came originally, uh, from which the rain came to destroy the earth. God now hangs up his weapon uh, and says, I will no more use this. And by the way, you notice as we read the passage, this is, uh, this is unilateral, isn't it? Right? God isn't saying, when you claim the rainbow, then we can enter into a dialogue and decide whether or not I'm going to destroy the earth. No, the Lord himself declares through this sign, when I see it, I will remember the covenant that I made. Uh, this is God divinely ordaining and instituting this covenant. He's declaring what he will do and what he will not do. Uh, he is preserving creation, and it's up to him 
He's the one who takes the initiative. He's the one who maintains it. And that picture of the rainbow uh, is something that is meant to remind us that God is the one who will keep and preserve his creation. So that's the basic summary. I've got some discussion questions that we can get into. Uh, but I did think that last time it was helpful for us to open up just for basic uh, questions or, or uh, comments, your reactions on this chapter. Was there anything that you read as you were going through chapter 7 uh, that was surprising to you, uh, that, that was really good that you just want to tell everybody else about? Is there anything that you're puzzled by? Uh, that's where we can start before we get into some of these other things. Dave. Is he trying to maximize potential love objects? Um, I, yes, yes. Um, so one of the points that Robertson makes is that, uh, that though the Lord promises never again to destroy the earth, it is an important picture of the final end that is coming. And in fact, in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, it speaks of the end of days in very Noahic terminology. Uh, then it's, it's described in a flood of fire, not of, not of uh, water, um, but it is this cataclysmic event at the end of days. And Robertson points out that it, that it is this warning in human history so that we take seriously the warning at the end of human history. Um, so is he maximizing love objects? Maybe. Uh, it's also worth noting that, uh, that Noah is not the only seed of the woman uh, who, is pres uh, who encounters the flood, right? Um, he wasn't the only child born in, in this line. There were probably other siblings. There were cousins. There were other family members. Uh, and yet God chooses Noah. Uh, and he allows, uh, he he does not restrain the sin in the rest of humanity. He allows it to come to fruition. I think actually there is a parallel there uh, with Genesis chapter 15. Uh, Genesis chapter 15, which Mike will speak about next week. Mike is going to be talking about the covenant with Abraham. Uh, you remember that scene where the, the smoking pot comes and passes between uh, the, the pieces and God makes a promise. He says, I'm going to give you the land of the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, all of those people. Um, but you're going to go and be isolated for 400 years in slavery. And I will bring you back because the sin of the Amorites has not yet been completed. God actually removes his people from the promised land and insulates them for a time while he allows the sin to come to fruition. So that when he brings his people back into the promised land, the judgment that they render is just. Exactly. exactly. They shouldn't, at least. And that's the same thing, I think, that's happening here, right? Uh, God has this line. He has this Noah and his family, and yet the sin of man is increasing to a point where even uh, in chapter 6, uh, take a look again, uh, verse 3, chapter 6, verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. 
his days shall be 120 years. That is not God putting a cap on the lifespan of man. Notice that after the flood, Noah lives another 300 years, right? That is God decreeing mankind has about 120 years before I send a flood on the earth, okay? Uh, so God is saying, I'm giving some more time. How long did it take Noah to build the ark? About 100 years. How long was the flood on the earth? A little bit more than a year. And so this is God seeing uh, sin increasing in the earth and saying, I've got this plan I'm going to make this promise. I'm going to preserve this one line. But everybody else has an expiration date. Yeah, so I, I think uh, potential love objects, maybe. Uh, he, is, uh, he is separating out one line while he allows everything else to come to the point where his judgment is just and far more than just, right? He's, uh, he's, he's patient if we look at it in that way. If, if man's already full of sin uh, to the to the nth degree, and God still gives them 120 years, uh, then, then that is God being gracious in that. Steve? Absolutely, yes. I love that. Uh, I hadn't thought about that. Uh, this is why we study scripture together, uh, so we can, we can sharpen one another. This idea of a remnant, uh, and you see this, again, pointing us in the direction of Christ, right? You, you, you could look in Isaiah, and you could see this stump that is burned, uh, that has been lopped off and has been uh, chopped down and, and charred, and yet there is a shoot that comes up from the stump of Jesse. Well, who is the this, this shoot? Well, it's the remnant. It is the Savior, the servant of the Lord. And so we are saved by being united to, to the elect one, uh, Christ Jesus. We are elect in him. We are a remnant in him. Uh, and it's through this preserving of the one uh, who was to come that, that we receive salvation as well. You see this happening with Noah. Now you see it happening, uh, as you said, in many other places in the Old Testament. Uh, you can go to Elijah uh, you know, Lord, I alone am left. Actually, no. Uh, there are thousands that I've saved for myself. I have this remnant. I'm preserving them. And we see this happening already. Cynthia, you had a comment or a question?
yeah, th there is a really interesting uh, contrast there. Uh, the, the flourishing of evil before the flood and the flourishing of righteousness. Um, and think of some of the promises of the, of the prophets. Right? The knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Uh, and, uh, and of course, that was what, uh, in, in our family worship, we've been reading uh, the book of Acts. And uh, we got this week to the, the part where uh, Paul is, uh, is speaking to the Jews, and he says, uh, you know, that I'll be sent to the Gentiles. And it says, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they began flinging dirt in the earth and, and cursing and saying, away with such a man, he shouldn't be allowed to live. Why? Because he said that God's grace and goodness should extend beyond this covenant people. Well, actually, that's what it was always supposed to do. It's too light a thing to make you uh, a servant only to the household of Jacob. I'll make you a light to the nations. That's what God said about his servant through Isaiah. It was always supposed to flourish and grow. Uh, and we see that happening when the gospel comes and the grace of God extends to the Gentiles as well. I saw Tim, was that a hand? And then I saw Dave and then Steve. Sorry, Dave, you're, you're number two. Tim. Yeah, so the question of how does he bring relief and, and how does that relief point us to Christ? Um, that's a good question. Uh, Steve, do you want to speak to that one? The ark. The ark, exactly, yeah. Uh, flesh that out. And again, that's in 2 Peter. So if you want some of the, some of the connections between Noah and Christ, they're all over the place in, in uh, Peter's writings, but that's right. So uh, Noah, of course, as the covenant head here, is a type of Christ, but as Steve is pointing out, the primary type pointing to him is the ark, this vessel in which humanity is, uh, is saved and redeemed. Yeah. But the other question was, well, how does he give us relief? Uh, well, we do see... Uh, that the Lord says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Uh, so it's, uh, we could, spitballing here, uh, we, we could think of it uh, in the sense of, 
you know, one of the one of the things that Robertson says uh, is, um, uh, I don't know that I could find it, um, but he says that that God, in sending this judgment, uh, realizes, of course, he realized before, uh, the insufficiency of bare judgment to fix the problem of sin. One fourteen. Thank you. God understands that the sin problem will never be cured by judgment and curse. If appropriate relief from sin's corruption is to appear, the earth must be preserved free of devastating judgments such as the flood for a time. And so God knew before all of this happened what was going to be the outcome, that man's heart was still going to be uh, corrupt from his youth. And yet he does say, uh, in language very reminiscent of Genesis chapter 3, where he said, cursed is the ground because of you, he says, never again will I curse the, the ground because of man. That is, never again will I bring complete destruction on it. Uh, and so there is this curse through judgment being rendered uh, and God in his grace deciding not to bring judgment again. Um, so maybe that's, maybe that's a way that we see it. Uh, maybe that's a way that we, we find this relief through, through Noah. And then Dave had a comment. And then, Matt, is that a comment, or are you just, okay? Yeah, and, and think about the way that the gospel applies to individuals and the language that the New Testament gives us about the right time and the fullness of time. Right? Paul speaks of the right time in Romans uh, when he says that, uh, that at the right time, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Uh, not after we've cleaned ourselves up and dealt with the sin problem on our own, but God saves us from death in our trespasses and sins in which we all once walked. Uh, and, and raises us up, right? So Christ and the gospel steps into the fullness of our sin and picks us out of it, right? The other one, uh, at the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Well, what was the fullness of time? Well, you get lots of people saying, well, this is the Pax Romana. It was when the gospel could be spread all throughout the earth. It was, you know, it was a time when there was the ability to take this, this uh, message, that's not where the text goes, right? In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That is, to redeem those who were under the law, who were full of sin according to the law's uh, conception, in a sense, or, or, or the law's uh, definition of it, right? And so the fullness of time when God sends forth his son is when the sin of man is, is on the rise, 
And so whether we, we look at it uh, as, you know, did God save you when you were as sinful as you possibly could be? No. Uh, there's a difference between total depravity and utter depravity. Uh, but God saves us uh, when, uh, when we are sinners and shows us his grace in the midst of the sin and the need that we have for him. Yeah, I, I love that connection. Steve, and then Nick. And here's an interesting way to, to think about that, too. We talked last time about um, uh, progressive revelation uh, and the fact that God is expanding and giving us more, of, more pieces of the same picture. Uh, I used your illustration last week, though you, you, you missed it. Different, different picture, but we, we did vignettes of a, of a larger image. Um, and that's what we see here. Uh, now, it's a little different with some of the other sacraments, if you will, the other signs and seals of of God's covenant of grace, uh, we're going to deal next week with the covenant with Abraham. We're going to deal with the following week with the sign of circumcision and how it relates to, to baptism because baptism has replaced circumcision and the Lord's Supper has replaced uh, the covenant meals of the Old Testament. But there is no replacement for the sign of the rainbow. In fact, the sign of the rainbow continues. It's not a sacrament in the way that we, we think of a sacrament, but it is a sign and a seal of God's covenant of grace for all people in, in, in a sort of uh, covenant of common grace, uh, and it's something that has not been pulled back. And so it, it's grace expanding, uh, and, and it's grace growing so we can see it and, and pull all these pieces together and, and get a, a slice of the larger picture. Nick, I saw your hand.
good catch. Yes, I, I agree with your pushback. Uh, it has never been as bad as it could possibly get. Um, but it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. Uh, and again, yeah, you're right. And I mentioned, Dave, just a little bit ago, there is a difference between total depravity and utter depravity. Um, we would say that we are totally depraved because our sin touches every part of our being. Uh, but even somebody with unlimited power to do terrible destruction and damage, think of the despots of history, right? The Hitlers and the Stalins and the Pol Pots and, the, and all those other people. Uh, even they, believe it or not, were, were not as bad as they possibly could have been. Um, you know, hard as that is for us to wrap our minds around. So yes, thank you for that corrective. Uh, it's true that God's restraining grace keeps man from progressing further in sin. We do have, at the beginning of chapter 6, this clear indication uh, that God's restraining grace was withdrawn to a very large degree. That's the, the deciding factor between every thought of his heart was only evil continually and Noah was a righteous man. What shows up in between those two things? Noah found grace with God. Right? Thank you. Back to Steve and then Cynthia. Right. Uh, let's take a look. I saw Cynthia's hand. I'm going to come back to you in just a moment. Um, First Peter, chapter 3. Almost done. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, 
It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was prepared, being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Uh, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience, uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven to the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers having been subjected to him. Uh, I was thinking of uh, two separate passages. This is one of them. Uh, this one telling us that what was waiting, what was, uh, what was in abeyance uh, during the days before the flood, well, it was God's patience, right? It was God waiting, as we spoke earlier, for, for sin to come to its, its fullness, its fruition, um, but God was waiting. Uh, it says that God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. The other passage that I was thinking of that we won't turn to, I believe, is in Jude, uh, where it tells us explicitly that Noah preached the gospel, uh, that he was, uh, am I right? In, uh, yeah, it's in Jude. Uh, Noah preached the gospel during this time. He was building the ark. He was preaching the gospel for 100 years. He was telling people to turn to God. And during that time, uh, when we pull these two passages together, the gospel is being preached, the word of God's being preached, and God's patience is waiting. So it is now. And you turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, God is patient. People are saying, well, where is the sign of his coming? Everything is preceded as the way it has uh, since the days of our forefathers. Where is the judgment everybody's talking about? And he says, well, God is patient with you. His patience is waiting. What's happening in the meantime? The gospel's being preached. The word of grace is going out. It's, it's urging men to come in, to turn away from their sin, and to find life and hope in Jesus Christ. Uh, and in the meantime, there is this picture where gospel is offered uh, and God's patient wait, patience waits before he brings this judgment. I think that's a good example of the same sort of thing, uh, Steve, uh, where uh, there is a moment, even when we see you know, somebody like Hitler, even if it's to maintain his own power, uh, waits and holds off uh, because the gospel is shining a light on the sin that, that's in front of him, right? He knows that it's wrong. The fact that he stops shows us that he knows that it's wrong. And, and even if he knew that it was wrong because he didn't want to lose power, but there's still that glimmer of, uh, of humanity and recognizing that you can't just do what you want with human lives. Uh, there, there's this sort of patience and this waiting in the meantime. Yeah. Cynthia, and I think you're going to have the last comment. Good. Not in that section, no.
Yeah, and, and as Steve mentioned, uh, Cain and Abel, right? So, so Abel brought a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. Uh, this is not something that Noah invented. He didn't come up with this uh, of his own volition. Uh, it is interesting, as you go through, uh, how many of each animal were brought onto the ark, not two and two, uh, seven of the clean animals that would be used later. Uh, so two and two of every animal, except if they were clean animals fit for sacrifice. And they brought extra so that when they were done, they could sacrifice them. Um, and, uh, and so there's obviously some extra... Uh, revelation going on behind the scenes that, that's not recorded for us. <clears throat> Some of the means of grace are there. Yep, yep. Yeah, and, and so I think that's a, that is a good um, sort of tying together. Um, if there is a desire to sacrifice, where does that come from? Well, it comes from the favor that Noah has, has found with God. Right? Uh, why does he take these animals, so few now on the earth, and offer them up instead of keeping them for himself? God is about to declare, I give you the animals for food. Uh, okay, great. Let's, let's have a feast. Why doesn't Noah keep these for himself? He offers them as a sacrifice. Well, because God has moved his heart. The thoughts of his heart is only evil continually, and, and, let, and yet God is restraining. God is giving this grace, uh, and, and this grace that does, I believe, point forward uh, to the Redeemer who is to come, who gives his life as a sacrifice uh, to present a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord uh, on behalf of his people. So we're going to end there. Uh, Mike is going to pick up next week with the covenant with Abraham. Uh, there's a whole page of discussion questions we didn't even touch, uh, so use that in your, your family worship this week. Use this in your discussions later. Uh, if you find things you disagree with, uh, write me a nasty email later in the week, and I'll, I'll take your comments offline. Uh, so let's pray together. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for your word. Uh, we pray uh, that you, by your restraining grace, would keep us uh, from further sin. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine this morning uh, as they are facing violence and bloodshed. Uh, we pray that you would restrain the power of men uh, and that you would preserve life. We pray that you would help us to see that not only uh, in the theater of the world and wars and uh, politics, but help us to see it as we come to your word today. Help us to see it at your table, that you are the one who preserves life. You are the one who has given your son as a perfect sacrifice to save sinners and to redeem us to yourself. We pray these things that you would help us to see it and help us to worship you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.